but let's say every coin that is created has a unique serial number and there's a network of computers around the world that track the owner of that cryptocurrency. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Eric Rosenberg, founder of Personal Profitability and Crypto Expert. But first, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. This weekend was pretty calm because, uh, you know, we're getting ready to go to Mexico. And so... We just had, uh, you know, we had some stuff we had to do. We had some family kind of friend events. We also had a, a really good friend who had their 30th birthday. It was kind of crazy. There were people from all over the country flew in, like two DJs, a photo booth. That was a little nuts. But for the most part, you know, we weren't really traveling because we were getting ready to travel. How about you, Cody? Well, funny enough, Justin, we actually had a couple of birthday celebrations ourselves. One of our friends, Kaylin, had her birthday and also Lauren's stepdad's birthday was this past weekend. So, Went out to a couple bars, went to, we tried to go to this place called Level 99 actually, which is like almost like a souped up Dave and Buster's where you have all these different events and it's almost like a bunch of mini escape rooms. There's like 40 of them and we get there, we show up, we try to make reservations and they're like, hey, do you have reservations? And they didn't let us make them on the phone. So we get turned away. We ended up going to actually Dave and Buster's, which is a, you know, slightly less fun version, but it was still a blast. We had an awesome time. And yeah, now we are recording this from our kind of back deck in Mexico. We're overlooking the pool. You might hear some of these exotic birds in the background, but cannot complain about the weather here. It was nine degrees when I left Massachusetts on Monday morning, and now it's like 85, and it's going to be 99 next week. So we'll see how we weather the storm, but really excited to kind of get everyone coming through. We had Justin, me and you flew in with James and Emily and Leslie and Lauren yesterday and then later this week we have a bunch of people joining us a lot of past guests actually like craig curlop and rachel richards and sarah weaver and brooke packard and all their significant others it's going to be like 14 of us at the peak when everyone is here it's going to be a ton of fun we'll have to kind of recollect on next week's intro on what we did in mexico what we did in merida yeah it's kind of crazy cody we were talking about before we started this this is the first time me and you have been in the same like area together, like physically in the same place together to do any recording for the podcast since like the very first episode. So that is kind of crazy. Like some people, a lot of times people ask us like how we do this. Most of the listeners, I think, know at this point that we are not in the same area. So this is the first time we've got to actually record together, which is a pretty cool experience. But that is enough about us and what we got going on until next week. So let's take a moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. 
And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. All right. So today we have on Eric Rosenberg, founder of Personal Profitability and Crypto Expert. So this is an episode that Justin and I have honestly probably pushed out for too long. But as you guys know, Justin and I are all about taking measured risks. We don't want anyone to jump full-fledged into crypto or NFTs or you know name the upcoming project next year. But this is a space that is expanding rapidly. It's something that you should probably understand if you are in the personal finance space, just how things work. And we really get to dig in with Eric Rosenberg, who's been writing about crypto for man, the past three or four years. He's been writing for big publications. He is really in the weeds of crypto, learning the actual use cases, like how can crypto actually change the world? How is crypto used? Not like speculatively, not like, oh, I hope this coin goes to the moon, but like how we can actually use it and how different countries are using it. And it was a really interesting episode, kind of getting to pick Eric's brain and just talk about crypto from a really basic level. Yeah, Cody, the thing I really liked about this episode is that crypto can quickly become like really daunting. It can be very overcomplicated. It can be kind of hard to get your head wrapped around and you can quickly dismiss it because it does sound so complicated. It's like, well, this sounds like way too hard to make any sense. Like, why would we need this? But Eric does a great job of taking and using banking analogies that all of us are familiar with, you know, standard industry, kind of the ways we send money and the ways that we store money and the ways that we protect money and how we save money is ours, all that kind of stuff. He uses those analogies to really make it easy for a normal person who's just getting into crypto to understand. And like Cody said, please, you know, we want everyone to be responsible with how much you leverage crypto. But I think in all types of investing, whether it's crypto or real estate or whatever it is, uh, you know, individual stocks, you know, in my view, I think it's a good idea to look for some of those asymmetrical opportunities where you can take 5% of your portfolio and just try to go after something that if you miss, it doesn't really set you back. But if it hits, it could really make a big difference. If you've been skeptical about crypto and want to look for some other resources where you can learn more about crypto, or maybe you are an enthusiast, but you have a hard time kind of conveying that to other people, you can go find those show notes and then grab that link to send to your friends over at thefyshow.com slash crypto. That's thefyshow.com slash C-R-Y-P-T-O. Take it away, Eric. My first getting into personal finance, that's definitely memory lane. It was, I did personal finance merit badge when I was in Boy Scouts. That was definitely influential. My grandpa, when I was around eight, gave me a general ledger book for my birthday, just what every kid wants. <laughs> and uh, he said <laughs> to write down all of the times I make money and all of my expenses to keep track. And that's how I know how much money I have and where it's going. I have some old lessons and memories but i think the first thing that really got me excited about money it also came from my grandpa and he was a professor actually he taught at the business school at the university of arkansas he was a marketing professor he was a pretty financially savvy guy built his way up from a very very low income background actually when he got out of the army after world war ii he sold his pants he needed the money so we have his old jacket we don't have his old pants The fun memory is he took me when I was in elementary school, I'd go visit for maybe a week every summer and stay with grandma and grandpa. And on weekdays, he would take me to the bank in downtown Fayetteville, which downtown Fayetteville is not like this giant downtown, a little small town in Northwest Arkansas, college town. And we'd park on the square and walk over to the bank and they'd have a terminal because this was before computers, like internet and all that we have today. This was terminals and mainframes. So it was one of those 
black screens with green letters only. And we would type in ticker symbols and it'd pull up live 15 minute delayed stock prices. And we'd go through his whole portfolio and he had a a sheet. It was kind of like that general ledger book he gave me, not surprisingly, (laughs) to update his stock prices every day. And he thought it was better to get them live than in the Wall Street Journal. He'd check the journal too. This was back in the day. This is the 90s. But he'd start quizzing me on ticker symbols on these companies. And I remember he was like, oh, oh, here's one you might know, BBY. It was Best Buy. Back then, I wasn't going and getting CDs and games there and stuff. So uh, I was excited about that. And I'd start learning the ticker symbols. And that's how I got excited about the stock market and money. And it all really kind of grew from there. It's always huge, like what having that kind of exposure, that unique exposure at a young age, like when you're sitting there, like you're trying to explain that to a kid. A lot of times at first, like it's not going to sound that interesting, but obviously it made a lasting impression on you. At what point did you realize, I kind of like later in life, like where you realize I want to make this a part of the way I make a living more than just something, some kind of knowledge I have in my back pocket? It was probably high school when I started to figure it out. There was a choice. I went to a great high school, big high school, thousands of kids. So we had a choice between doing art or music classes or business classes, and we, we could choose. So you know, a lot of kids would you know, go do band and all that stuff. I was like, oh, I'll do business. That sounds fun. There was probably a hint right there that I thought, oh, that sounds fun. And I took those business classes and I did really, really well in them. It was mostly stuff I already knew from growing up. We owned a small business. We owned a video store. My dad was always very open about money with me and teaching me about how money works and making sure I had bank accounts and knew what the statements meant. So I was always kind of engaged with money. It was definitely in high school, I was starting to think, oh, I'm going to have to pick a college major. That's going to be my career. I was thinking down the road, what do I want to be when I grow up? (laughs) And at that point, I kind of decided I think I want to be a Fortune 500 CEO when I grow up. I had friends who were into sports. They wanted to be on Sports Illustrated, and I wanted to be on Fortune. I don't know if I'd still say I want to be a Fortune 500 CEO. It's quite a lifestyle they have. Gotten lucky enough to know people who've done it, but I definitely loved the financial world and the numbers and the money, and it affects everybody does all the time. I mean, whether we like it or not, we live in a society where money is almost everything. You know, people... You know, say money is the reason they can or can't do all sorts of things, living their dreams, traveling, covering rent, mortgage, all sorts of things. So um, it's just so important. So as an aspiring Fortune 500 CEO, what were those next steps after school? Like, what is the roadmap? What was your game plan to achieve that lofty goal? I did the business school thing. When I got to college, I did undergrad at the University of Colorado. Wasn't sure if I wanted to do finance or marketing ended up doing finance. It just spoke to me a little more, I guess, for whatever reason. I like the idea of running a bank or, uh, you know, being like sued at Goldman Sachs, something like that. It seemed kind of cool. Like in Wall Street, like Gordon Gecko, like that, that whole thing. I was like, that's cool. I want to do that. So, you know, not like screwing people over and taking their life savings, but being rich and making my money on Wall Street. That sounds kind of cool. So I started moving that direction. And actually my first job after college, I was a bank manager and I was miserable. I hated it. I worked seven to seven. It was awful. The culture was not right for me, but I learned a lot and there were parts of it I loved. I loved working with the customers. I loved looking at how people's finances come together and how they can put plans together because they didn't just teach us as the managers. We weren't just taught how to do a transaction at the teller line, though I did have to learn all of that. I learned how to approve new accounts. I was... uh, I 
reviewing the credit card applications manually that came in for anybody that started an account at our branch. So if they signed up for a credit card company-wide, if they started with my branch at any point, it comes to me. So I was looking at mortgage loans, credit cards, credit reports. They taught me really everything you need to run a bank, which was a great experience. And I really appreciate that, even though I didn't enjoy the actual working that I was doing. So I ended up moving on from there into cubicle land. And I was in corporate finance and accounting for about 10 years. And early in that, I went and got my MBA working full-time while doing the MBA full-time. So I was actually paying for the MBA as I went and getting student loans because I went to a private school and it was really, really expensive. I focused mostly on the investment side of finance there, which was really neat experience as well. I got to do a trip out to Wall Street and was on the trading floor, the New York Stock Exchange, and got to see behind the desks, a lot of big investment banks and private equity firms. It was a really neat experience. We also managed part of the university's endowment fund. So I got the experience of being like a fund manager, which was also really neat and something I reference regularly. And yeah, then I I kept going with the career, still finance accounting. And it was funny along the way, thinking like way, way back, I mean, as I was going along in college, I worked at a Boy Scout camp for seven summers. And that actually paid for my college. I got a full ride from working at Boy Scout camp. But my last summer at camp, I ran the camp office and we had this new satellite internet that was really slow on the roof. And I had my laptop because I was a college student. And during the really slow times when all the scouts were off doing their merit badges and I didn't have much going on, I started a little blog. It was about something not related to money at all. I had a few little fun blogs on Blogger, I think before Google bought it. And uh, eventually I started one called Narrow Bridge Finance. It was actually narrowbridgeadventures.blogspot.com. And that became <laughs> Narrow Bridge Finance. And that is now personal profitability. So that's a, a blog, podcast, and YouTube. I still have. So I started that in 2008, which makes me a dinosaur in Blogger years. And I was doing that as a little <laughs> side hustle all along. So I was working in the cubicles, like Tarantino, right? We went back in time. Now we're back to the present of me being in my 20s working in cubicles. And this side hustle that I'd started after I left the bank was when I started the finance blog specifically. And it started to grow and grow and become a place where, wow, I was paying for my beer tabs every weekend. And in my 20s, I was saying something. I was going out to all the nightclubs. It was, it was fun. I like to treat my friends to around. And then it got to a point it was paying my rent. And then I got a condo. It was covering my mortgage. Wow, this is pretty cool. Then I moved uh, across the country to Portland and it kept growing and growing. And then it got to a point that on the side, I made $40,000 in a year. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. The average person in Portland makes about $40,000 a year. And I did that doing this on the side and maybe 10, 15, 20 hours a week on weekends and evenings. What if I did this full time? Like, I should at least be able to double it if I double the time, if not more. And through the blog, I'd started doing some freelance writing, and that was starting to generate more income than the blog by far. So at one point, I said, you know, let's do it. And with a stay-at-home mom wife and a six-month-old daughter, I decided to quit my job, sell my house, and move to the most expensive part of the country and become self-employed. And here I am. That's the story. (laughs) And so that last part's really interesting to me where you mentioned like you've had this family, right? And you're doing this big, crazy change from a career perspective. Obviously, 
you had a lot of time behind you where you had shown year over year that you could produce some income. But what was that like from your family's point of view where you're like, I'm about to step away from a traditional career to just writing on the internet about money? My dad thought I was nuts. It was like, you've built this great career, you make a good income, and it's probably only going to grow. You work at a Fortune 500 company with prospects for promotion, your income keeps going up, you get great health insurance, you have a beautiful house, growing family, why would you want to leave this life? And there was a day that I went for month-end close. If you have any accounting friends, you know that uh, month-end close can be really busy. And there was a day I went and I got to work, you know, it was still dark out and I left when it was still dark out, but that happens in in the winter in Portland. Uh, But when I left for work and my daughter wasn't awake yet and I got home and she was already asleep for the night, the whole day I didn't get to see my kid because of work. And that had me thinking about priorities and how I work. And I was thinking back to this income trajectory and the, how I'd made 40000 on the side. I was like, well, I bet I could make this work. And yeah, so my dad thought I was crazy. My mom said, well, you've had big ideas before and you've always been able to do anything you put your mind to. Uh, so she was pretty supportive. She said, if you th- I, she said, I don't really understand it, but if you think you can make it work, <laughs> go for it. My wife was probably the best supporter. She was the most confident in me the whole time. She said, I know you could do it. I've seen how you've been doing. You'll do fine. So she calmed me down a few times, right? After the night I quit my job, I was like freaking out. I was like, was this the dumbest thing I've ever done? She's like, no, you will be fine. We'll be good. We have been fine. And it has been good. It has been wonderful. But yeah, definitely it was scary in the beginning. And I got mixed results from other family members, you know, aunts and uncles. Everyone had an opinion on, on the guy quitting his job to write about money on the internet. Like I said, it worked out great in the end, but I didn't jump without a parachute. I had that revenue already coming in. I already had the side hustle. So it wasn't just a career change. It wasn't just quitting my job without any income with a baby at home, even though it sounds more fun to say it that way. I really did have a business that I'd been building for about eight years. And then I was the overnight success. So when you look at a lot of the big personal finance bloggers and podcasters who thanks to conferences like FinCon, I've become friends with a lot of them. We've all had this big, long history before we were an overnight success and you started seeing our name everywhere on the internet. So remember that we worked hard and it was a lot of hours sitting on my computer writing articles at Narrow Bridge Adventures, eventually personal profitability, and then getting paid not very much writing articles for other website owners and small startups because I didn't know better and because I was new and I was building a new business and I learned a lot and I was lucky to have found communities that were really supportive and offered a lot of education, a lot of information. They were able to help me learn from their good and bad. And I was able to really build a successful business and become a leader in, in what I do, which is pretty neat. Well, first of all, I just want to congratulate you on taking that leap and crushing it. And, you know, I've been following your story for a while now. I think we met probably three or four years ago whenever I stumbled into the personal finance community. And it's been yeah. fun watching you grow. And now I kind of want to get into the reason we wanted to have you on today. You mentioned freelance writing and passing. I know it's become extremely profitable for you. And it seemed like at the beginning of, you know, personal profitability, that started to become a really real revenue stream. And something you've written about a ton in years of late. Seems like as I was doing my research over the past two years, and you mentioned before we hit record over the past six months, it's been almost exclusively what you've written about is cryptocurrency. Justin and I have kind of neglected having an episode focused on this topic for a while. 
we've mentioned it in passing, but I really wanted to take this opportunity to get it from someone who's writing about it every single week, who knows the ins and outs. So I guess first question here, let's just take it from the top because I think we have listeners who are all across the personal finance spectrum, or at least the ones I know personally. What is cryptocurrency? You can take it in any direction you want, Eric. I'll kind of let you have the stage here, but let's just kind of get crypto at a high level and then we'll start digging into all the nuances. Sure. Well, I'll have to obviously start by mentioning Elon Musk. So if you saw that Saturday Night Live year or two ago where he was talking about cryptocurrency and Dogecoin, he actually did a pretty good job. So I'll kind of go off of what, how he described cryptocurrency to start, and then I'll use my own flair. But he described it as a digital form of money. And that is a really good way to describe it. It's a digital form of money. So there's a lot of different cryptocurrencies and they all work differently. And that's an important distinction if you become a cryptocurrency investor to understand how each one works. But at a high level, each cryptocurrency is like you think of a dollar bill. Uh, if you pull money out of your wallet right now, it doesn't matter if you live in the US or not. If you live in Europe, you know, pull out a euro, uh, a pound, a yen, doesn't matter. If you look at it, especially I know this is true in the US, there is a unique serial number on every single paper currency printed. So every dollar is the same, right? I could trade you a $5 bill for five $1 bills. I could trade you a $1 bill for a $1 bill. You don't care what dollars you have. You just care that you have dollars. But there is some kind of mechanism happening with the Federal Reserve printing a serial number on each one that keeps every dollar bill unique. So picture that concept, but now put it on a computer. Every single cryptocurrency that's created is unique. It has not a serial number. It has a code. It's a very long stretch of random numbers and letters. It's an alphanumeric code. And every single cryptocurrency that has ever been created, every unit, some are called tokens, some are called coins, so you might hear me use the terms interchangeably, but let's say every coin that is created has a unique serial number and there's a network of computers around the world that track the owner of that cryptocurrency. So you as a user can create a cryptocurrency wallet, just like I'm like here, I'm showing my wallet as we're talking and recording here of a boring uh, leather wallet that I like. And it has those dollar bills with the unique serial numbers on it, right? Over there in my safe, actually here, I have a, here's another one I'm reaching. This is really bad podcast because I'm showing something. <laughs> uh, I'm holding a, a, a form of digital cryptocurrency wallet in my hand. So I have a handful of those. As a writer, I've gotten a bunch for free to test and it's pretty cool. But there's a lot of different kinds of cryptocurrency wallets, ones that you can hold like I just was, ones that plug into your computer. If you're on your desktop computer right now, it could be a browser plugin. There's one called MetaMask that's really popular and free. It could be something held through another company like Coinbase. They might do it for you. But every single person who owns cryptocurrency, it has to go to a wallet. And those computers around the world, they track from the moment that cryptocurrency is created, everyone who owns it forever. So that is why uh, what they call the blockchain. It is a giant ledger or a giant database of every single transaction that has ever happened with that specific cryptocurrency. And it's cool because we always know if you're interested uh, how the mechanisms work, but we have a secure and undisputed way 
of knowing who owns every currency at any given moment. And that allows us, if we want to use it as an investment product, like people do with Bitcoin, something that we say, oh, we know who owns every Bitcoin and there's only ever going to be 21 million. I think it's, I want to say 21. I think that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. So there's also like some of them are 27, 29, but yeah, so 21 million. And there's only ever going to be that many and whoever owns them owns them. There's other currencies like Ethereum where they keep making more of it. And those are, think about it more like a transactional currency, more like actual dollars or rather than like a stock or like gold. So people call Bitcoin digital gold because it's that limited asset, kind of like actual gold. There's only so much of it out there. We can't make more. And they'll probably figure it out in a lab someday. But right now, the only way to really do it is get it out of the ground. So it's limited and scarce, just like Bitcoin, where Ethereum's more like dollars. There's inflation built in, and that's okay. There's reasons and mechanisms to control it. And we can use that to buy things if we want. I've actually bought a domain name with cryptocurrency. I haven't done many actual purchases with it, but I've made a few. So I bought domain names with it. I bought an NFT once. I do have one NFT. Technically, the domains are NFTs. So cryptocurrencies can be transactional as well. That's kind of the high level of what most people, we're going to explain crypto to your grandparents. I'd probably stop there unless they <laughs> want to get involved as an investor or something. But you know, the typical person, that's about what they should know. I think everybody should know that much about cryptocurrency, that there are wallets, every cryptocurrency is unique, and there is a secure network of computers, they're usually called miners, if you hear you know, the term cryptocurrency mining, that track all of these transactions in a public way. And you can go see, you could type in a wallet address and see every transaction that wallet has ever done. You can look at a specific Bitcoin in your wallet if you have a fraction of a Bitcoin or lucky enough to have a whole Bitcoin. You can look and see everyone who's ever owned that specific Bitcoin. And it's semi-anonymous, so you won't know who all of those people are necessarily, but you can track every asset from origin to now, which it's a neat feature. And there is the potential to make it you know, more secure and ultimately prevent money laundering and things. Right now, it's, as I said, somewhat anonymous, but it's a neat thing. It's a cool technology. I'm excited to be involved in it and, and be teaching people about it. So I think you did a great job of making a lot of good parallels between like cash, gold, and this, this new form of what we're thinking about is like money and investing to make it seem very easy to consume. Like it's, you've got a wallet, you got a ledger versus, you know, this database, these things that make it where you can say, okay, so this is like another form of money, but what are the differences? Like kind of what's the, so what, like, why do we need a new form of money? Yeah. So a lot of people might say we don't. I always throw a disclaimer in everything I ever write and say about cryptocurrency. There's a good chance it could double, triple, 10 times, 100 times in value, could also go to zero. So there's big risks involved. It's just over 10 years old, so it's not brand new, but it's pretty new. Government regulations can happen and in an instant, it might fall by half the value. Like that, that actually did happen in China, made cryptocurrencies pretty much illegal and the value went way down and that it sent ripples. So there's speculation and some people say we don't need this new kind of money. But there are people who say that we do need new kinds of money and new assets. And to me, I think where the value comes is if you look at different use cases and every cryptocurrency has different use cases that make sense. Uh, one that I really like is called Stellar Lumens, and that's not one of the most 
widely known cryptocurrencies, the symbols XLM, that it is made for high-speed payments around the world. So unlike Bitcoin, Bitcoin is meant to be kind of a store of value. The point of Stellar Lumens isn't to create value, it's to make it easy to pay. So let's say you live in the United States and you have family overseas, or it doesn't matter, any other country, Mexico, Russia, Iran, Pakistan, doesn't matter, anywhere in the world, as long as they have an internet connection, they can create a Stellar Lumens wallet for free. You can get that address from them, send them money, they'll have it in less than a minute confirmed in their wallet. The whole cost to you is going to be probably, it goes up and down over time, let's say, it'll be under a dollar, I'd say pretty confidently, less than a dollar to send that currency to anyone in the world in less than a minute. They don't have to go to a Walmart to get the cash. They don't have to go to a Western Union or a MoneyGram or a bank. It's just there. It just shows up in their wallet once you send it. And that is a huge value. And that is something that there's no other good mechanism that I know of that we have right now. I actually have a client in Australia. It's a cryptocurrency website. And we've been debating the best way to pay me. And PayPal is kind of the default for international transactions when you work with people online. That's really expensive. It's going to be a heck of a lot more than a dollar. If he pays me in Australian dollars, I convert it to US dollars and withdraw. It's expensive and it's fast. And PayPal's a good, trustworthy company. You know, they were kind of cutting edge at what they did at the time. But what's the next step after that? And that's where you know, Stellar Lumens are really neat as a payment mechanism. There's digital assets that people might want, like NFTs, they get big headlines. So NFTs, if you don't know, it stands for non-fungible token. So where like a Bitcoin, you don't care if you have one Bitcoin or another, like the dollar bill thing we were talking about earlier, that means it's fungible. So every single unit of it is the same. For NFTs, they're non-fungible, which means everyone is unique. Everyone is different. So that is why people are willing to spend you know, outrageous amounts of money <laughs> to buy digital artworks because they're unique and there might only be one of them, just like there's only one Picasso. So some people might be able to make pictures of it, but that digital asset can only be owned by one person one time. And the reason I bring that up in relation to do we need another kind of money so that NFTs are right now the most common and popular digital asset that we see traded on blockchains. And to pay for that trading, you need the cryptocurrency system to work. So the trades happen on the same systems as the money. So with Ethereum, as an example, if I were to send you an NFT that, let's say I make a... Uh, scary monster NFT series because I don't know, you can make a series about any kind of NFT now. My kids like scary monsters. So let's say I make scary monster NFTs and I make 50 of them and I want to send 20 of them to my friends and keep 20 for myself and sell 10 on the internet. If I want to send you one of them, I have to have a way to send it to you. And the way I do that, the most common way right now is using Ethereum. So I would create the NFT as a unique non-fungible asset send it to you and I'd have to pay with Ethereum to cover all the cost of the computers doing all the tracking around the world to say, I don't own it anymore. Now you own it, which is a similar transaction to if I sent you money. So 
those systems and things you cannot do with other money right now. You can't really easily do all of that with dollars. And there's other neat features that cryptocurrencies have. So smart contracts, if you've heard that term or not, it's a piece of software that kind of rides on top of the cryptocurrency network. So an NFT is a kind of a smart contract. It's me creating a unique software that creates this asset that says I can send it to you. The asset goes from my wallet to your wallet. I used Ethereum to pay for that transaction. So that's an important use of Ethereum. So next, smart contracts. That's something you might or might not have heard of. So a smart contract is a piece of software that is on top of the blockchain. So the blockchain is that big database I was telling you about, the ledger. So we'll use Ethereum as an example again, because it's so popular for this. If I send you that NFT, it's actually a smart contract. It's a form of smart contract. So there's other kinds of smart contracts you can create, which will become really neat, I think, in the future and how we do things in the real world. This is where it goes from becoming just this cool digital money to a really useful and innovative thing. So let's say the stock market. We could turn the stock market into smart contracts. Right now, the NASDAQ is a good example. It's all digital. It all runs through computers. We could, instead of having the computers run the way they do now, run using a blockchain network. Let's say it used Ethereum and it wouldn't, but let's just say it did as the network. You could create a smart contract for the NASDAQ and every single share of stock would be a unique token, like an NFT. So if I wanted to send my mom a share of stock, it would be as easy as sending her an NFT. You could potentially digitize real estate assets with smart contracts. Maybe I live in a city called Ventura in Southern California. I think it's a pretty cool place. There's you know, however many houses here. Maybe every deed or every title in Ventura becomes part of a smart contract. I mean, this could happen everywhere. I'm using my city as an example because I live here. So let's say I want to sell my house and move to another house down the street. We could create a smart contract that says when this much currency is deposited into this wallet, then this wallet sends this house deed to this wallet. And that like smart contracts are all like, if this, then that that's all pretty much all computer code is if this, then that. So you can create that code though, to do real estate transactions right now. We have to pay for title insurance go through title searches. If you've ever bought real estate, it's a ton of money and fees. It's a really slow process. Even if you want to pay cash, it's probably going to take you at least two weeks to deal with titles and, and recording. Imagine if you didn't have to do that, you just paid you know a, a little bit of cryptocurrency as a smart contract processing fee, and the rest just happens. Uh, you, you didn't need five companies in the middle. So there's some really neat things as I keep using the word neat because there's some neat things that can happen. Um, we're not totally there yet. We're just scratching the surface with the current NFTs and there's a few blockchain games and, and things out there, which are, are getting to be more fun and interactive and having, uh, having more features. Uh, but so, so there's to make a, a long answer long. Um, why do we need a new kind of money? We don't need a new kind of money necessarily, but a new kind of money can be innovative and useful in a way that old money isn't. And uh, there's a possible 
future where the U.S. government creates digital dollars. That'd be a, it's a government-backed uh, currency, and and that might happen. It very well might happen, and that would be a really useful leap forward. That would take old money, those old serial numbers we have, and marry it with this new technology. And we're not quite there yet, but it, it's looking like it could very well happen in, in several countries uh, within the next couple of years that we'll see central bank digital currencies. So yeah, it's neat. The future is exciting. Yeah, there's so many use cases. I'm really glad we're having this conversation because when people are like, I don't get crypto, they just kind of shelf it. They don't want to touch it. They don't take the time to learn at least a little bit of the value. And I like how you lead with this could go to zero. So we're definitely not saying go put all your money in crypto because there's all these amazing things. I do want to mention one more cool use case before I get to my next question here. So I was just in Greece for pretty much all of October and in either 2012 or 2013, when the Grecian government collapsed, the bank took like, I think it was whether you had, it was either 100,000 or 200,000. If Greeks are listening, I apologize for getting that wrong because people were like in uproar about this. This was a huge thing. They just seized your assets if you had more than that in the bank. It was either 100 or 200K. So they don't trust their banking system whatsoever. So they're like all for crypto. Like a lot of the bars I went to, you could pay for your drink with Bitcoin or Ethereum. There were just so many more use cases because they didn't trust their government. I know that's a similar case in Venezuela. I haven't been there. And some other countries yeah. around the world where there's like, they don't trust their government with their money. So why not, you know, put their faith in this other thing that's kind of agnostic of where you live. I just thought that was a really cool use case that I saw. Before you ask the next question to build on that, some of the really neat potential, like think about countries in Africa where there has been huge corruption. Um, Zimbabwe is a great example. They've had hyperinflation. So they got into a bunch of debt, like the US is in a bunch of debt, but we have slow measured payment processes in the US that keep the dollar stable. In Zimbabwe, they just printed a bunch of money. So I actually have in my little safe here, 10 100 trillion dollar bills in Zimbabwe. <laughs> I had to look it up what the word is. I'm a quadrillionaire. And that gives me about enough money to buy a loaf of bread. If you live in a place where that had that kind of hyperinflation, brought Venezuela, this has happened in many countries over the years where if you get your paycheck on Friday, by next Friday, it's worth 20% less because of some economic thing. If you take governments out of currency, which is scary to a lot of people, you know, the idea of having non-regulated currencies, I get why that could be scary. There could be problems. But if there were an international currency that were government agnostic, you could get your paycheck. It doesn't matter what your government's doing. You could maybe ask to get paid in a cryptocurrency. Bitcoin, um, you're paying for things in Bitcoin. I think that's interesting because Bitcoin, it was kind of designed for payments, but it is not the best cryptocurrency for payments. That's why I brought up Stellar Lumens. It's cheap and quick. Dogecoin is cheap and quick <laughs> to use for payments. If, if you like Doges, it's a funny word still. <laughs> but uh, the benefit, you know, if you live in like Venezuela and you have that problem where by the end of the week, your paycheck's worth half. By the end of the month, your paycheck's worth almost nothing. You'd be a lot better to have a cryptocurrency wallet full of something than to have your local currency that's just going to become worth almost nothing or in a bank in a country that might seize it or you know there's a lot of different financial risks to having your money in, in different financial systems it would give a lot of safety and 
in places where there's no bank accounts in African villages. <laughs> there's a lot of people who are uh, living on cash that can be dangerous for a lot of reasons. You know, you can get robbed, you can lose it, your home can burn down. There's a lot of scary things that can happen to a family if they only live on cash. And cryptocurrency would give them a way without a bank account to have money not sitting in cash that's secure that only they or their family can access. And with these lower cost cryptocurrencies made for payments, there's Stellar isn't the only one. It's just one of my favorites. There's, there's a Ripple XRP is actually what Stellar is based on. But the U.S. government said that one was kind of illegal. So it's not easy to buy that one here. You can use it out of the U.S., but it was designed for the same thing. There's other payments currencies as well. And there could be new currencies created for this. Because I think if you read a lot, you know, there were micro loans in small rural villages through Southeast Asia. Because they weren't the traditional kinds of loans that we would use in the U.S. didn't make sense there. So maybe the banking system that we use in the U.S. doesn't make sense there and a digital currency does. So that's also a neat potential use case. All right. So if someone thinks this is cool, and again, please be careful. Don't be investing money that you don't have. Let's go with kind of the basics. Like you haven't invested in crypto before. What platforms do you buy it on? Where do you get your wallets? Do you use a digital wallet or a physical wallet? How do you track all this stuff? I know you probably have a whole setup, Eric, that's maybe too advanced for listeners who haven't gotten started in this before. But let's <laughs> maybe let's kind of take it from the, you know, I haven't invested at all in crypto. Where do I get started? Yeah. So if you want to get started in crypto to preface, there's a good chance you'll lose money. My personal rule is for the risky assets, the alternative assets, things like those fun reinvest in art platforms and cryptocurrencies. I keep that up to like 5% of my net worth. That's my comfort zone. Everyone's is a little different. I know some people who are like 80% in cryptocurrency. That wouldn't be for me. So that's just a little reference point of where I personally am is about 5% or up to about 5%. So let's say you want to put that amount of money into cryptocurrency. There are a bunch of good platforms to get started. If you want it to be as easy as possible and don't want to learn a whole lot about how it works, you just want it to be about as simple as buying a stock. If you have a stock market trading account, then you would go through a centralized exchange Probably the best known is Coinbase. I have accounts there. That was where I got my first Bitcoin a long time ago. I should have gotten more and kept it. That's what we all say who started early. Is we should have just gotten more and kept it because then I'd be sitting on a yacht doing this instead of in my home office. <laughs> um, but a platform like Coinbase is great. I, I have no problem recommending them. I think they're totally fine. There's other good competitors as well. Kraken is a good one. Uh, they have low fees. Gemini is a popular one. I like Gemini because they pay high interest rates if you do what's called staking. And that's like depositing your crypto in an account for a period of time. And usually you can take it out whenever you want. So you're just saying I deposit it, then it's staked. And with stable coins, which are always worth a dollar at Gemini right now, and there's another site called BlockFi, and they both offer similar services. They're both great where you can earn around 8 or 9% interest on those stable coins. So outside of the 5%, I actually have a lot of my cash in stable coins. So I actually do have more than 5% of my assets probably in cryptocurrencies, but a good chunk is in stable coins that are always going to be worth a dollar. And I like the Gemini stable coin and the 
Coinbase stable coin because they're reputable companies and they have good audits on what's behind it. There's other stable coins that are not so reputable. There's one called Tether that I don't know that I would hold it. I'll just say that. um, (laughs) Yeah, something like Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini. uh, There's a handful of really good competitors. If you Google it and say, like, what's the best place to buy cryptocurrency, you'll probably find an article that I wrote on the first uh, (laughs) page there that'll give you some of my favorites. So that's the easiest way. If you want to take it up a step and be a little more crypto savvy, a little more complex. So when you use a platform like Coinbase or any of those centralized exchanges, KuCoin is kind of a fun one, but it's, they give you access to riskier coins. So I'd say be careful if you go there. If you hear about those like kind of wacky coins and you want to get into them, like all the different derivatives of Dogecoin, like Shiba Inu and Dogelon Mars. I got some baby Dogecoin. <laughs> you can go to a place like KuCoin and um, you'll be able to find more of those, but they're going to be a lot riskier. Remember that too. So those platforms, if you use any of those, they will create the wallets for you and act as a custodian, just like your bank. So they'll hold, or your stockbroker, they'll hold those cryptocurrencies for you. If you want to hold them on your own outside of the exchange, which some people would say is more secure because there have been exchange hacks in the past, you can do that using one of those wallets like I was holding up so you listeners couldn't see them. But there are some good brands. Uh, The most popular two, there's one called Ledger. You can get one of those for about 50 bucks to get started. There's another called Trezor that I really like. So either Ledger or Trezor is a very good choice. If you want ultra super security, there's one called Keystone that's pretty cool. And there was one I was just holding up called Tangum, which T-A-N-G-E-M. They work with NFC. So you actually have these little cards that look like a credit card. Hmm. And that card using the same thing that you use to pay with a tap with your credit card or your phone at a store track keeps your wallet information on these cards. So you can put those cards in your safe deposit box and access it with your phone. There's lots of different hardware wallets. That's what those are called. So the benefit of a hardware wallet, any hardware wallet, let's say you use Ledger because it's the most popular, you move that wallet, which is like a USB device. It looks just like you know, an old, if you used to use a USB to like put a paper on your um, computer to take it to school to print it out, something like that. So it's about the same kind of size. It looks very similar. And that will hold your wallet keys securely so they don't sit on the internet and no one can hack it. Some people say that's the most safe and secure way to keep your cryptocurrency. The downside to that is if you lose it and your backup codes, you could end up like those guys you read about who are digging through trash dumps looking for hard drives that have tens of millions of dollars in Bitcoin on them. So you have to know what you're doing. It's a big, if you feel comfortable with computers in general, uh, if you would say, you know, I, f- I feel comfortable with computers, if you say that applies to you, you could probably use hardware wallets and figure it out without too much difficulty. If you're someone who says, yeah, I don't feel so techy, you'd probably want to stick with a centralized exchange like Coinbase or Gemini or BlockFi that keeps it all easy for you. And so like, you know, kind of culminating this conversation, right? We, we talked about how some of the benefits you could have, such as these places that might have hyperinflation. It sounds like you got this kind of vector of these coins, like these stable coins, where that could be a little bit more useful that way because it is not moving so much up and down. Mm-hmm. I think most people, well, it'd be awesome if their dollars started multiplying on their own. They also would freak out if like, you know, this month with crypto, we saw maybe like a, you know, some stuff dropping 50%. Your dollar never just drops 50%. So it sounds like those stable coins can kind of 
scratch that itch. And then we have these others like your Ethereum's and your Bitcoins that have utility, but they're also for a lot of people, they don't really care so much about the utility. They just care about from an investment perspective. And I know like when I got uh, Ethereum for the first time back in 2017, I think it was like $120 a coin and now it's whatever, like 3000, it was up to 4000. That's like crazy, like 20 times, you know, the value. But from all your research and seeing like how you said, we're just scratching the edge of the utility. I know that there's a huge risk. You could lose a lot of money and obviously would never want listeners to go and just pile a bunch in. I think your 5% rule is awesome. But like, what is your kind of gut reaction to the forecast of where we're headed? And with that, not only got crypto in general, but are the names that we see now, you think the names that we're going to see in three or four years, or is it going to be like all technology where the way Blockbuster was disrupted by Netflix, like you have to stay current on this stuff and realize when to get off the train for a specific coin. I know there's kind of a lot in there. That's a great question. So I'd say my high level answer is I love analogies. We're going to go with another one of those. If you are at an age where you lived through the dot-com bubble, I think we are experiencing something kind of similar. During the dot-com bubble, which I I was in high school for most of it, if you created any company that ended in dot-com, it didn't matter what it was. It could be a really stupid, bad idea that didn't make any money. You could go find someone in Silicon Valley who would pay like $50 million to buy it or $100 million to buy it. It was just like, I guess you could call it like stupid money. It was like, it was crazy, easy to make money. I'm working on a, a little project, financial technology project that I've been working on for a few years. And I was joking with some friends about it that, geez, I should just put a blockchain technology feature in it and I could sell it for $100 million and doesn't even have to work. And they laughed. They said, honestly, that's probably true. So in a situation where that's probably true, it means we're probably in some kind of a bubble. But that said, if you look at the internet today, there's a lot of companies that end in .com that are the most important companies in our lives in the world. Like We couldn't imagine most of us living without Amazon coming to our door and Google or Apple on our phones. You know, They were all .coms and they survived the .com bubble and they remain some of the most important technology providers in the world. So I think that's probably what we're going to see happen with the cryptocurrency world. A lot of these kind of funny projects probably aren't going to make it. But the ones that have a real use case and really catch the world's attention can really make it. Some people call it digital gold and Litecoin digital silver. Those are kind of neat analogies that I like because, as we said earlier, there's only going to be so much Bitcoin. It's not something you can do much with other than keep it like gold. But there's a good reason to have it, and it is useful for things. You look at utility tokens, what they're called are the currencies that you can build smart contracts on. So that's Ethereum. And then there's uh, platforms like Avalanche and Solana. Some of you may have heard of uh, Cardano. Um, They've had some hiccups, but it's a pretty solid technology. Um, So each of these platforms that you can build smart contracts on and they're really useful for something, I think those are the ones that are going to make it. So the reason I bring up Stellar Lumens again and again is because it's useful. I could get paid in that and be happy to get paid in that. And it's quick and it's easy and it's cheap. So that's useful. So that's why I think that one might make it where the baby Dogecoin that I had to jump through hoops using MetaMask and smart contract IDs and pay with Binance Smart Chain 
do all these things. Like, I don't know if that one's really going to make it. You know, that, that one might just be Dutch tulips. So that's why I only bought $15 of it because I thought, you know, if it goes to a penny, I can retire. And if it goes to zero, I won't care that I lost $15. I mean, people lose more in Vegas on the roulette table. So you have to know what you're investing in. Are you buying buy pets.com that blew up and became nothing? That was like the worst dot-com bubble story probably. Or is it going to be Apple or Microsoft or Amazon that, that comes out and maybe changes the world? And those ones, I think, have a chance that you could make some money on them. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to make a ton of money. For some of them, the party's already happened. <laughs> if you're buying Bitcoin now, like we've already all heard of Bitcoin. But there are still new currencies coming out that will continue to be useful. And I think those can survive the dot-com bubble as long as they're useful and get good adoption. I think that's a good place to put a pen in it for today. I am definitely, after we get off, we're going to book around two because I have like a million more notes. I didn't realize how long <laughs> it would take to get through just like the basic stuff. Like the rabbit hole, man. It's, the rabbit uh, hole is so deep. <laughs> everyone knows somebody who just like one day, all they started talking about was cryptocurrency and it went on for like two or three months and then they start talking about other things again. Like I went through that. That's you. <laughs> I'm out of it now. Like it's just, part of my normal routine but people who get into it as you're getting into it there's so much to learn and it is such a powerful technology uh, that it is like you know, alice tumbling down the rabbit hole in a lot of ways there's a lot you can keep learning if you want and get involved if you want or you could just buy a little bitcoin and leave it from there awesome well seriously guys listening you are probably going to hear Eric's voice very soon after. I'm not sure when you're tuning into this episode but we definitely need to do a round two i have so much stuff on mining and DAOs and taxes and nfts but usually we like to keep our episodes where the listeners can you know keep their attention span so eric for those who want to follow along i know you are a prolific writer constantly writing about this stuff where do you want to point people where's the best place for people to catch up and stay in contact sure yeah i have a free week-long boot camp called personal profitability boot camp that i'd love to give you for listening to me this long and also twitter is probably the best way to to catch me and i have my own blog and podcast at personal profitability and the best way to find links to all of that is just go to eric.money in your browser and it'll pop up some good links. Awesome. Well, thank you, Eric. I mean, like Cody said, we're probably gonna have to do this again because there's so much information here. I know that I kind of like respect the value of what crypto could be, but also uh, respect the danger that could come with it. So hope yeah. listeners get to listen to this and, you know, get to educate themselves more than anything else. So thank you for coming to the show and helping them with that journey to get educated. Thanks so much for having me here, guys. It was a lot of fun. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. <laughs>